0: It's the month of January, and um, usually we're a little more reflective in January. I thought that was a really strategic time for us to just kind of answer some questions about who we are, what are we doing, and I really don't want to make assumptions. Don't want to make assumptions. When we assume, we really do open ourselves up for vulnerability to lose, to confuse, and then to lose. So I don't want to make assumptions about what it is that we're doing here this morning, Uh, when we gather around God's Word. I don't want to assume that everybody has the same understanding of what we're doing, that they have the same... I want to be very explicitly clear about one of our values. Again, so we deeply value, we have these seven values that we've written out, they spell the word compass, and the O in that we say is our deep value is around orienting our lives around God's Word. I do not want to assume that we are all on the same page with what that means and how we do that. I want to be explicitly clear this morning. What does it look like to orient a life around Scripture? And this matters for a lot of reasons. Uh, All the experts, uh, when they talk about what it means to be unchurched, People who are unchurched. Here's a definition that people give for what it means to be unchurched. Somebody is described as unchurched if they're not meaningfully involved in church in the last three years. I don't know if you're good at math, but three years ago, there was this, it was 2020, and this thing happened, and a lot of folks stopped going to church. They are about to enter a category of folks called unchurched. People we know and people we love in a totally judgment free environment. It's like, hey, you're not churched. The world is shifting, the world is changing. And what used to just be taken for granted by churches now can no longer be assumed. I'm deeply convinced that if we make assumptions about Scripture and our value about Scripture, we are just preparing to bury a church. If we assume, ah, everybody loves the Bible, we love the Bible, they love the Bible, we're on the same page with this Bible stuff, everybody knows what it means, here we go. We are speeding up the church for her decline. In every movement of God, whether it's in redemptive history, as recorded in scripture, whether it's in church history, in every movement of God... God's spirit has moved and revival has broken out. One of the key components to God's movement has been a love for his word. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about you're able to beat your friends at Bible trivia. I'm not talking about we measure our spiritual maturity by how many facts we know about the Bible. I'm talking about people who are orienting their lives around God's word. Whether it's in in Israel, when we think about King Josiah, and the law was lost, and he finds it and revival breaks out in Israel. Whether we think about the early church, one of the things that they gathered to do was the breaking of bread and gathering around the teaching of the apostles. I'm deeply concerned that if we just kind of assume, oh yeah, we're all on the same page about that, we are speeding our church toward decline. And so what I want to do this morning is to look at a passage of scripture. It's from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And what the wisdom literature does is it presents two paths for us. Two paths. One path that has a posture toward God's word and another path that is heading in a different direction. Because look, if we look at... If, look, I'm, I, I want to be really careful how I say this. I don't want to sound like a used car salesman. But I, I'm really convinced that what I have experienced at Compass Church over these past five years is on the spectrum of revival. If we think about the, old, the, the, the definition of revival, new life... John Tyson, he's a pastor in Hell's Kitchen. He gives a definition of revival. It's when God's Spirit shows up and does things in a time frame that would normally take about three times that. So God's Spirit shows up and moves. And I think we, we have seen revival happening here. It comes. It's on the spectrum of revival. We all may have different perceptions of what that looks like, but I have seen God's Spirit move and transform people. And the danger... That we face is that that can happen and then we trust practices. We look for like the secret sauce. Oh, well, if we just do these three or four steps, we'll get it. We'll get revival. That's not Christian. The passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning lays out four postures so not practices. We're not trying to look for patterns. Oh, well, if you study, oh, you know, this was happening in the Great Awakening. This was happening here. Oh, let's just copy that. This worked in this church over here. They're growing. These patterns. No, no, no. But if we, if we lay hold of these postures, these ways of being around God's Word, I'm confident we will see the Spirit move. And so we're going to talk about Psalm 1 this morning. If you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. There's these two paths before us. And so we're going to take uh, the language of the psalmist and we're going to talk about the five stages of decline and then the four postures we can do to, uh, to, to experience flourishing. So there's five stages of decline. Uh, I get this from, uh, he's in the Arab sociologist Ibn Khaldun, he's um, said to many to be the father of modern sociology. He, He, back in like the 1300s, studied cultures and said, hey, there's about five stages of decline. So when people get together, right, whether that's around a church, whether they get together and form a city, whenever just people get together and make something, whenever there's a collective of folks, there's typically these five stages that they go through To when the fifth generation buries that thing that got created. So people came together. They made something new in the world that wasn't there. And then if they're not careful, it goes through these five stages. Now, this is one of the hard things about preaching in a university town. I already can see it on your faces. Really? Does this apply to every situation? What are the what ifs? Yeah, what about... Totally. Okay, totally. We're just talking about patterns. Alright? We're just trying to learn from patterns. Of course there are exceptions. Of course. Alright? And and just by way of, I am not a sociologist. I'm like an armchair expert here. Okay? So this is just, uh, this is something that uh, Ibn Khaldun had and then a pastor in Australia, Mark Sayers, kind of put it together in thinking about churches. And so we're going to take that language and we're going to kind of use that to compare how the psalmist talks about decline. We're going to talk about these five stages. We're also going to talk about what the psalmist talks about, how the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. We're talking about four postures we can own. So five stages of decline plus four postures we can own. So if you have a Bible, we're in Psalm 1. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, they prosper. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we see these two paths before us, God. God, help us to be people who our posture is a listening heart. That we sit with the Father. We orient our lives around your word. We are informed by the story of scripture that shapes and colors the way we see your world. God, we believe in your presence is fullness of life. We believe you live on the pages of this book. God, we want to experience that abundant life this morning. Ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You can be seated... So as we talk about these two paths, you just need to hear me say just a couple things. We just got to clear out some furniture before we have this conversation. If you've been here for any length of time, I hope one thing you would say about me is I am not an alarmist, all right? I am not like, the world is awful, it's headed to hell in a handbasket. grab your can, grab a can opener, like let's head to the hills, it's really bad. I think when we talk about decline and when we talk about these things, it can be really easy for some of us to get like nervous and because some of us, we have these things in our imagination. So what we're describing, like, you think about the fall of Rome, right? You think about when you hear stories about the fall of Rome, like, it was just this, you know, they took things for granted. There was decadence. You know, they're paying money to watch animals rip people apart. Colosseum. You know, they're famously, like, they're, you know, eating themselves, gorging, and they're eating and just because they're just living in this opulence. And people go, yep, that's us. Watch out. Watch out. You got to learn these lessons. Okay, that's not the conversation we're having this morning, okay? Like, I, this is not, I'm not a political theorist. I don't, I don't, uh, there's a lot I don't understand. I just, learning a lot. I'm like, wow, I don't know anything. We're focused on church here, okay? Jesus did not come uh, to Washington, D.C., okay? Uh, he came and he built his church, all right? And that's what we're talking about. When people come together and people build churches If churches aren't attentive to certain things we see these five stages of decline and again this is not a hard fast rule but this is some things some patterns people have seen so let's talk about these five stages here's the first stage the first generation builds something okay these are your risk takers these are the people who come together and they build a church all right that's generation number one something didn't exist in the world people saw a need said hey This community needs a church. Let's build something. Here we go. They come together for a particular reason, right? If this community had a church that did this, we think this would create flourishing. They had a vision. They were driven. They saw something. They saw a need. There's an ethic that comes with the first generation, and it's an ethic of sacrifice, right? If, If you're building something, and you can't really build anything meaningful without sacrifice, So the first generation has this ethic of like, hey, we see a need, we're we're all in. We're gonna build this thing, whatever the cost. They come together for that reason, and they do it. Then though, something else happened. The second generation, once that generation goes away, the second generation comes in, and they come in more with like an ethic of service. Maintaining this thing that got built, right? If you think about, uh, you know, after World War I, what was like the motto? Lest we forget. Right? So we didn't, you know, go overseas and risk our lives and do all the sacrifice to protect our country. But, but we want to honor the folks who did. We, we saw what our grandparents did, the sacrifices, and we really own on to that. So think about even like, um, like immigrants, people who immigrate to another country. Right? They saw their parents just like working really hard so that they can go to college. And there can be this, this ethic within I mean, man, I've got to honor that legacy. Right, and that happens in churches. The first generation builds it, makes a sacrifice, creates something beautiful and meaningful. And the second generation's like, we've got this ethic of service. We've got to maintain this thing that happened. That's not bad. That's just the way it is. All right? But that where it can get slippery is in the third generation. If the first generation builds it, the second generation maintains it, the third generation assumes it. So they assume that the flourishing that they're experiencing is just the natural way the world works. Right? So their parents' generation, that second generation, may have seen something happen. Like, man, I saw the world wasn't this way. A sacrifice was made. Things changed. Okay? And so, man, we gotta, we gotta work hard, or else we could slide back in the other thing. The third generation, though, is like, this is just the way it is. What are you talking about? They assume it. They take it for granted. And with this generation comes an ethic of entitlement. Some of you older folks are like, yeah, we know some of these people. All right? An ethic of entitlement. And if we're not careful, we go to the fourth generation. Fourth generation neglects it. Right? Imagine this. Imagine it's like, imagine if I don't take care of my Honda Civic. All right? Like I just drive it. I never change the oil. You know, I'm only doing in-town driving. It starts and then I give it to you. Right? And you don't maintain it either. Put put die. That's what that Honda Civic does. That's the fourth generation. They neglect it. And the ethic of entitlement often leads to an ethic of corruption in this generation. So this, these are looking at like when groups of people come together, this is like a natural rhythm that they take. If they take for granted what the first generation built. We, go, we move from the sacrifice to just, hey, let's serve, let's maintain. We move into a th- a entitlement. Hey, we're owed this to then taking advantage of that. Corruption. And then lastly what happens is the fifth generation buries it. This generation has an ethic of grief. They look back on what's been lost. If you read uh, authors in the Dark Ages, the so-called Dark Ages, 13 to 1500s, when they look back on Rome, they're like, how in the world did they do this? How did they build these like pillars and aqueducts? Like, this is really sad. We don't have anything like this. This is terrible an ethic of loss grief that these five stages are what happen when churches when cultures when when they assume what happened to the first generation is something that's just going to keep happening we stand on the shoulders of generations who've come before us who've made tremendous sacrifices to hear from god I mean, think about people, like, if you read church history, like, Anabaptists, you're like, man, they died because they were just trying to separate, like, church and state. Like, now that's something even, like, wildly irreligious progressives do. Like, we take that for granted. These people, like, literally died trying to do this. We take so much for granted. And it's like, where are we on this stage of decline as a church? I have a good friend. He, he was a pastor, he left the ministry. It was too depressing. And so he left the ministry. He gave me permission once. He said, like, you know, if you just let yourself think for a second that the church in America is unhealthy, it really does free you quite a bit. Like, oh, yeah. It's kind of depressing, but yeah, we can at least diagnose things. I don't know. It's kind of dangerous to paint with broad brushstrokes, but we, uh, Generation 3, maybe, we're somewhere in that, like we're taking things for granted. We're assuming And it doesn't have to go this way, but we just do have to own there is no quick fix for renewal. There's no quick fix for renewal. And this is just what we've seen happen again. This happens with countries. This certainly happens with churches. There's this life cycle where God moves. There's renewal and it's taken for granted. We just assume this is the way it always is. What do we do? Psalm 1 was written to a group of people who were navigating the fifth stage of decline. Psalm one was written to a group of people who were watching their country go up in flames. The book of Psalms was compiled and put together after the exile of Israel. So after Assyria and Babylon come in, wipe out Judah, wipe out Israel, and they're taken off away from their homeland. After all that happens, they're given a book. They're given a book and are saying, hey, this can help bring renewal. This will guide you through exile. How do I know that the Psalms were compiled and put together after exile? Psalm 137 describes the exile by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat and we wept as we remembered Zion. How did they remember Zion if it was still there? This book was put together after exile. What it was meant to do was it was meant to help people who have just experienced the decline of God's people coming together. It was made to help guide them toward renewal. It doesn't have to get buried. There is another way. We can experience flourishing. We don't have to bury these things. The Hebrew Bible I hope you can read my terrible handwriting. I thought that would be cooler than it was. The Hebrew Bible is divided up into three sections. The law, the prophets, and the writing. Or the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketuvim. Psalms starts the third section of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis starts the first. Joshua starts the second. Each one of these sections of scripture open with a meditation on God's word. Genesis 1, what do we see God doing? Speaking. He's speaking and making things. Wow, God's word does stuff. That's amazing. Joshua, Israel's about to go into the land. What does he say? This book of the law shall not depart from you, but meditate on it. And as Israel is headed off into exile, what do they get? Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Happy is the person who does not walk in the way of the wicked, but who delights in the law of the Lord. God's word was given to folks in a situation where their newsfeeds were confusing. God is faithful. Israel's being carried away into exile. God is faithful. War. And the promise that we can get from Psalm 1 is this. We can be like a tree planted by streams of water. How do we get there? How do we really experience God's goodness and his faithfulness when we see decline around us? When we feel like, man, the last generation just rode rode all the roller coasters at the theme park and then it just caught fire. And what's left for us? What does the future hold? Psalm 1 sets up these two paths of one has a posture that's going to help us experience God's goodness in a confusing world. And the other one is a warning about the decline we just described. It's really, I mean, and again, that whole idea of decline... Listen to the language of, as we describe, as uh, the psalmist describes the wicked person. All right? Listen to this, listen to this language right here. Blessed is the one who does not walk. Hear the verb, who does not walk. Okay? There's mobility here. There's walking. All right, what's the next verb? Nor stand. Do you see that downward movement? First, we're moving. We're just going through the way of the wicked, right? No trouble here. We're just passing through. You know, I could be, I could explain this away. But then we stop and stand. And then what's the last one? Who sits. Do you hear that downward spiral? It gets even worse though. Uh, the person who sits in the company of a mocker. A mocker is someone who has a disdain for good. They're, they're just disgusted by Goodness. And now you're not just passing through anymore. You've set up shop. You are sitting in their seat. There is this downward spiral that the psalmist is saying, this is an option. This is not. I want to compare these two ways. I want to de- compare one way of decline. And look, one of those ways starts with like this neglect of God, of doing it on our own, doing it without, and it ends with us not being able to tell the difference between what's good and righteous and life-giving and what's harmful. It's really important that you hear this. Verse 6, listen to the language of this. Verse 6, this is the end of the road. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. That's really good news. Care, protection, attention, attentiveness. That's one path. Where God is providing, he's caring for our needs. He's looking out. He's saying, like, oh, here, this is the way you're on. But then listen to this. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. What did you not hear there? It's not, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous and the Lord destroys the way of the wicked. It doesn't say that. It says the Lord is attentive to, watches over, cares for. Right? Like, I think about how Jesus talks about like a mother hen watching over. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Everybody gets what they want, right? We make decisions. We step out. I got to do this without God. So the posture, there's a warning that the psalmist is trying to warn us away from, doing it on our own. He's saying that way doesn't lead to good things, and it's the way. But he's saying there is another way. There's four Postures. Remember, renewal comes from postures, not from following patterns and practices. We're not trying to hack growth here. We're trying to really experience health, a way of being. What are those ways of being? The first posture that brings renewal is joy. Look with this again. Verse 2. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates. Now, that passage can be confusing for our modern Western ears. Delighting in the law of the Lord. I do not delight in the laws of Columbia, right? I don't go out on my street. I'm like, yes, 30 miles an hour. woo Yes, there's a sign they have to pick up your dog poop. That's great. I get to live in a world, in a world without dog poop on my curb. Yes, See, when we think of laws, that's where our mind goes to. You delight in the law of the Lord. So we have to like, okay, great. We got to rejoice that God says, hey, build a parapet around your roof. Hey, like, don't eat shellfish. Like, what is it? What? The word law, most Old Testament scholars agree, is better translated instruction. We delight in God's instruction. There's care in that. Like, think about verse 6. Verse 6 is informing it. God's watching over our way. God's word instructs and shapes. Like, I, I hope you hear me say, and I want to say this really clearly, knowing a lot about your Bible does not get you brownie points with God. It may help our insecurity, knowing a lot about the Bible. I'm righteous. I know a lot about the Bible do you know who Melchizedek is? Well, I do. I must be super godly. That is not what this passage is describing. So many of us have been in environments where we have just like used God's word to make ourselves feel righteous. We've used God's word. Have you ever heard of what's called proof texting? What's proof texting, and again, I think that we're very susceptible to this, but it's like, oh yeah, what do you believe? Well, give me the exact chapter and verse. Which, again, we want our views to be shaped by Scripture. What that can quickly turn into, though, is like, I'm ar- I got this verse for that. Well, I got this verse for that. And we're just arguing back and forth, and we use the Bible as a weapon to beat people up over the head. That is not what the psalmist says. It says, whose delight, hafez, your joy, like, you, you, you just, it just is something that you, your heart, it makes your heart smile. How do we move from being a place where it's like, man, like, I, I know the Bible, I should know the Bible, I, you know, I, I feel like I need to read it more, to like a place where we're truly delighting in the Bible. Part of how we do that is we have to see this Bible, it's, is like, is like a picture of my wife. I love my wife. I love my wife. But like when I'm with my wife, I don't just stare at the picture all day. I'm like, hang on. Yeah. This is a good date. This is great. I'm glad we all went out. Scripture is like that. Scripture is supposed to inform our imagination. Here's who God is. Here's what he's like. So we can dwell with him. And Scripture is so much more than that. Scripture is not God. And Scripture is God. Jeremiah 1. This is a crazy passage of Scripture. Jeremiah 1, the prophet's getting called into ministry and says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Like, fantastic. Great. And then it says this, the word of the Lord stuck his hand out and touched Jeremiah's mouth. Words don't have hands. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it very much seems like Jonah was talking to a person. When we read scripture, we are dwelling with the living God. And that is how we delight. In your presence is fullness of life. I don't know, I mean, if you read all these like, productivity blogs, it's like, how do you move from like, something being a chore to something being a delight? And one of their tips is like, you know, instead of telling yourself you have to do it, tell yourself you get to do it. I mean, have you ever tried that? You're like, yay, I get to do my taxes. Don't have to do my taxes, I get to do my taxes. That works for like 20 seconds. How do we be people who really do move from, like, oh, I have to read my Bible yeah, I probably should do this. This is what good Christians do. To people who really delight in it. It's a posture. And it comes from really trusting that God is for us. That the promises we just read in Psalm 1 are true. Blessed is the person who delights in. There is a blessing that comes when I delight in scripture. I experience flourishing when my mind is shaped by God's word. That's why the language here is so fascinating. This is an echo back to the book of Ezekiel. That person who delights in scripture is like a tree planted by streams of water. In Ezekiel's temple, there's a tree of life and it's planted by streams of water. Hear this. The people of Israel, as they're going into exile, God gave them a mobile temple. Their temple was destroyed. The temple was the place where they were supposed to dwell with God, where in real vibrancy they would see the story of God. Like There's trees painted. The, s- the ceiling of the tabernacle is blue because it's supposed to look like the Garden of Eden. There's a tree all over the It's supposed to be like Eden. That's gone. Now he's saying this, though. This is Your new Eden. This is how we dwell with God. We can really experience His pleasure. We I don't want to take that for granted. What we're doing here on Sunday morning, again, we are not your divine book club. We are gathering together to hear from and to dwell with the living God. We're here to have an experience of God's presence. We really believe he is alive and well and communicates clearly through his word. And that shapes us. That shapes our imagination. That shapes how we feel about the world. It shapes how we see things. I don't want to minimize your own feeling the prompts and leading of the spirit in your own heart. I don't, absolutely don't want to do that. God does speak through his lead, the leading of his spirit. Jesus said in John 14, it's better that I go away because you're going to get the helper. I don't want to minimize that. And those prompts and those leadings, when they're informed by Scripture, whew, they save you from a lot of heartache. Oh my goodness. I have been very confident. God's telling me to do this. And then like later I'm like, ah, that might have been pride. Yeah, Okay, I've been very confident that God told me to do something and it didn't work out. And I'm like, I, I, I Think that was still the Lord. How do we know that? Our leadings are informed by the story of Scripture. That's the instruction of Yahweh. He's watching over our way and helping guide the way Through his word. That's step number one. Step number two. Step number one, joy. What's the posture we need to take? Is one of delight and joy. That happy to be together through scripture. Step number two, how do we avoid the five stages of decline? I'm going to say the word. You're going to have feelings about it. But just hang on with me for a second. Commitment. How do we avoid decline? Commitment. Step one is joy. We can't blow through that. Right? If we're just like, oh, we we ought to have a church. Let's be uber committed. Mm, That church is going to really quickly be something you may not want to create. It's delight in the God who speaks in his presence, through his word. But commitment. The third generation, one of, the, one of the, the hallmarks of that third generation is entitlement. Entitlement is wanting flourishing without having community. It's wanting flourishing without having to pay for it. Commitment is an anecdote to that type of entitlement. Commitment is saying like, yes. We are all in. You can't build anything meaningfully without commitment. And look, I think it was very good in 2020 when the world stopped and everyone took a breath and went, man, I have been running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Why do I do the things I do? I'm saying no to all these engagements. Oh my goodness, life went on. This is great. I really wanna focus on these things, not that thing. Great. I'm not inviting you to run like a chicken with your head cut off around Compass Church. Like, we're trying to minimize that, all right? But there is a kingdom commitment. Saying like, no, 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 we really do. That that mission that we keep talking about, that creating space, I want to see that through. I want to get equipped to do that. I am committed to learning and growing. We can't build anything meaningful without commitment. Why? Look again, look again at uh, Psalm 1, verse 4. Should not have closed my Bible. Psalm 1 verse 4 says this. uh, The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Wind comes. And without commitment, right? What's this delight? Verse 2. Delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Anybody in here who's ever practiced meditation or mindfulness? They talk about like in when you meditate not like Eastern meditation where it's like opening yourself up to Maleficent spiritual beings. We're just talking about like trying to be mindful. It's your mind can be so prone to go a million different places And it takes a ton of work to bring your mind back to something That's commitment It's like God you spoke I don't feel like listening God, you're speaking. All right, help my mind to stay here. That commitment. Look, there can be a lot of bad reasons to commit to something. Again, we can be like trying to do this performance rut of like, man, if I just try harder. If I try harder to be someone who's shaped by scripture. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really a a singular kingdom focus saying I want God to do something meaningful and he does something meaningful when his word moves so I'm gonna keep bringing my mind back to this. Commitment. Number three. Sacrifice. Nothing meaningful is built without commitment. Likewise, nothing meaningful is also built without sacrifice. That's the, that's the, the posture of this first generation. When they built something meaningful, they came together for a particular reason and they made sacrifices. It's very difficult. How many good ideas? There are really good ideas that they just die on the vine because people aren't willing to like hold on to those good ideas. I once heard a Silicon Valley investor say, 90% of the things that actually get funded are mediocre ideas. They're just mediocre ideas held onto people by a, with a ton of tenacity. You can get a bad idea really far with commitment. What if you had a good idea, though? Right? What if you had truth? What if you had the presence of God? A commitment to Scripture says, like what Paul talks about, we're going to preach the word in season and out of season. There is going to be a time where we're applauded, where we're liked, where it's popular. And there's going to be a time where we're looked at suspiciously, and it's confusing. Why are we doing this? And the posture says Commitment. I'm going to keep my mind focused on the God who speaks. Which leads to the last posture, perseverance. This is not always going to feel good. Verse 3, the person who delights, who meditates, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit right away. This person is like a tree planted by a stream of water which people instantly are so happy to be with and welcome your advice. It yields fruit in a season. Instant holiness is not a thing. I mean, we are, we are so formed and conditioned to want things now and want them to be awesome now. What's that old saying? Fast, cheap, and good, pick two. If you want want growth to come right away, it's probably not going to be the kind of growth that's going to get you through the seasons. That's why, Compass Church, we need old folks to stay engaged, all right? Because you've been through a few seasons, and you can say to younger folks, hang on. It will change. When I was navigating a lot of the, the, the relational chaos and turmoil of the past couple years, I had an older pastor I met with and I told him some of the things that started happening that I was getting excited about. And he said this phrase, which I'm embarrassed I don't know because I'm from New England. I'm like, I don't know what that means. But he's like, oh, the tides come in. i was like, is that good? These are like dead things come up on the beach, but okay, like, we'll go with that. Somebody from an older generation could see patterns and seasons when I can't. That's why, as a church who's going to orient around God's word, it's a church who orients around God's Word. It's not as us individuals. We need each other. Stay engaged, no matter. It's going to get hard. It, it is hard. I'm not, I mean, look, look, I'm only 35. And already I sit with like college students and I'm like, "Man, I don't get it. I feel, I, like, I feel so old. I don't understand it. What does that mean? I don't want to ask what that means. I'm going to seem so old. But I'm going to stay relationally engaged because they matter. We need intergenerational relations. We need people who've weathered seasons to be able to stand as a testimony to say, oh, yeah, God's faithful. We've seen this before, He provides. We don't need more millennials writing articles about how this is the first time we've seen it and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We need wisdom, takes perseverance. We need godly examples of people who are like, hey, here's what perseverance can get you. People can finish well. People can stay in marriages. People can commit to a body when they don't know what's going on and they can love people in that body. We need different generations. We need different seasons. Perseverance. One of the reasons that I got into ministry in the first place was because I was watching ministry being done in a way that absolutely made me scratch my head and be like, oh gosh, if I, I guess I gotta, I gotta hop in the ring. I was like a reluctant boxer. I did not want to get in the ring. Amy and I, we were in our early 20s. No kids. And we're taking a friend out for a birthday party. I'm in a season where we're sitting in a, a classroom uh, where Abner Chow is teaching the Bible. And I am, the Bible is like coming to life in ways I had never experienced it before. So in Luke 24, 44, uh, Jesus he says this about the Old Testament. He says everything that's written in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms; these three things, it's all about Me. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Me. I'm sitting and I'm learning. I'm like, wow, and I'm really getting blown away. I'm like, if people knew this, this would absolutely change the world. Well, fast forward. A friend of ours has a birthday party, and we're walking through the streets of that city, and there are there's all of a sudden this huge like flash mob of people, like just this huge crowd of people gathered around. Uh, like there's there's they're in like a semicircle and there's a bunch of street preachers preaching And I'm like I like a good show. Let's see what happens here so I stand and watch Some people, everybody that I'm with they kind of like wander around and There are these street preachers and I'll never forget. It was a really bizarre display They had this huge sign that says we'll give you a million dollars if you can prove evolution And I'm like wow Let's see if they can write that check Right? And so I'm just waiting. And then they also had this weird, like, they had, like, a corpse. So they had this weird, like, kind of hostile and aggressive sign. And they had, like, this fake corpse lying there. So it, that caught my eye. I'm like, is that, what is that? Why, what are they doing? I still, to this day, I've pondered it. I have no idea what was going on. So they had this fake corpse. They're yelling. And I remember there's a line of people waiting to talk to them from a microphone. And some guy gets to the microphone. And he asks this question. I keep hearing you saying this word evil. You're saying that I'm evil. You're saying that I'm what's wrong with the world. Can I please get a working definition of evil? And the street preacher at that point is not, he did not have the reaction I thought he would. I thought he was be like, this is fantastic. We're opening a dialogue. We're having a conversation. Oh my goodness, my words are resonating. There's curiosity. How great is this? I don't know why I thought that would happen. Instead, he would just like doubled down. And he's like, How dare you? And I'm like, whoa. This is even better than the movie we're going to go watch. How dare you? And then he starts quoting scripture. Shall the thing made say to the thing that made it, why did you make me this way? And now I'm like, I got to get up on that microphone. Okay. So I step up to the microphone. and I wait my turn and I just ask them, what do you do with Jude 22? And they're like, well, We don't know what that means. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. I will never forget it. Those guys dragged me behind their weird sign. And they started screaming at me and I was like kind of nervous but I was like more entertained than nervous so I'm like getting and they're like yelling they're screaming and like this lady followed followed me and um they're yelling they're how dare you do this how dare you do this I'm Like what what like, you should never you should never challenge a brother in public I was like what what does that mean is that a rule somewhere like what what are we what's happening and they're like how dare you and I was like, hey, wh- where are you guys from? What church you go to? And the name of their, the, the church they go to has the word grace in it, okay? And I'll never forget this lady, this like totally West LA, older Santa Monica lady who followed us back there goes, grace, oh my gosh, you need to rename your church. <laughs> and she walked away. That evening has haunted me. How will they call on him? In whom they haven't heard. This matters. We cannot take this for granted. There are people in your life who are separated from God, who are frustrated with the world's answers. They are spiritually curious and if we meet them with hostility, well the world's going to hell in a handbasket and you're part of the problem. We are working against the very grace that invited us into this in the first place. Thank goodness the people who welcomed us into this community did not have the posture of this street preacher. If you stuck around, which I doubt you would, you'd probably have a different posture. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. By your incredible Bible knowledge. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. By your insecurity around how much scripture you know and how quickly you have to remind people how much you know. The only way we can get to a place where they will know we're his disciples through our love is through this Psalm 1-3, a delight in the God who speaks. And we can delight because of verse 6, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. You're like, Am I righteous? I feel like I'm not righteous enough. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Another's righteousness has been credited to our account. And the beautiful thing is that when we receive that by faith, God becomes this caregiver who's watching over our way, protecting. And he leads and guides through his word. And he speaks. You don't have to go to seminary to hear his word. It's so important that you can hear God speak in a way that's accessible to you. He is here. He is not silent. Father, Father, we can feel the weight of this moment. That can feel like society is in decline. It can feel like churches are in decline. But God, we want a posture of joy, a posture of dependence a posture of trusting that in your presence is fullness of joy. That you speak through your word. That you're here to guide and to lead. That you're for us. God, I pray that we would be a, a group of people who are orienting our lives around the story of scripture. Who are being shaped by the very words that come from you. let go so all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.